welcome to The Relentless Life. I am Chance Galloway, 22-year-old published author, fitness entrepreneur, and podcaster. The mission of this show is to deliver empowering conversations, ideas, and perspectives to help you overcome adversity, level up, and unlock your vision of success. Thanks for tuning in. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. What's going on, guys? Welcome to The Relentless Life. This is your host, Chance Galloway, and today we are bringing on another special guest that um, that we've connected with on LinkedIn, and uh, this individual has really accomplished a whole lot in his in his lifetime, and he's still not done yet. He's, he's got a, a lot of plans and uh, for his future, but Mr. David Burkus is a best-selling author, keynote speaker, and former, former business school professor. Um, he, uh, we were just talking before the show. He's also a podcaster, has his own show, Radio Free Leader. And uh, so, so on top of a best-selling author and keynote speaker, he's also podcasting. Um, he has delivered keynote speeches to Fortune 500 owners. So just like one of our, our past uh, guests, Mr. Mark Bowden, uh, David, David Burkus has also spoken with Fortune 500 owners as well. Um, he is a TED, uh, TEDx speaker. He, uh, his TEDx talk received over 2 million views, which is uh, something we're going to get to. I, I really want to, to pick your brain about that and, and get into that. And on top of all of that, he in 2017 was named um, one of the world or in, for the world top business thought leaders by Thinkers 50. Now uh, this is this is something that is one hell of an accomplishment, and uh, and I'm looking forward to to you explaining you know this this uh, amazing accomplishment. So without no further ado, please help me in welcoming Mr. David Burkus to the Relentless Life. What's going on, David? <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. You didn't tell me Mark was on your show. I don't, I don't know that I would have agreed if I'd known that I have to share space in the RSS feed with Mark. But no, I'm kidding. Mark's an awesome dude. <laughs> He's cool, man. He's cool. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so David, uh, tell me, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, where where did uh, the story? Where'd your story start? Oh, I mean, how much time do you have, right? Uh, the, the, short, exactly. the shortest version of the story is um, I, I went to college, went to university, thinking I wanted to be a writer of, of some capacity. When you okay. are 19 years old, 18 years old, uh, a lot of times you think fiction you, you think fiction is all there is to writing, right? The whole concept sure. of nonfiction is like textbooks and those are super boring, right? Um, but it was in college that I found a lot of uh, the early sort of social science writers, the Malcolm Gladwell, Jonah Lair, mm -hmm. the people writing. Usually, usually it wasn't books at that point. It was long form um, articles in places like The Atlantic and New Yorker and what have you. Um, I think Gladwell's first book came out when I was still an undergrad. But um, that genre to me became fascinating. Right. The idea that these people were using great storytelling, telling a captivating story of a person or a company or something like that, pairing it with research into human behavior and making all of that sort of practical and applicable for people mm. was fascinating. And I also noticed that those people didn't starve the way that a lot of aspiring novelists starved. So we sort of took a we took a right turn there and started pursuing that. 
realm. That led to uh, graduate school, studied organizational psychology in graduate school, and then uh, that led to a bunch of different things. We started a podcast. Right. And I, I like to joke, it's the hipster line. I like to joke we started a podcast before it was cool. So, I mean, like 2010, <laughs> yep, when yep. You, you, you had to kind of hack it together. Like, I had people, there were not cool things like the platform we're using now to record this. I had people call into a 1-800 number, like, conference call line. And we would both talk via the phone. And then the conference call line would email me an MP3 file afterwards. That was as high tech as we could get. And then wow. I would take that file. I'd have to manually upload it onto a server, do the RSS feed stuff all by ourselves, right? It was a, it was a horrible time to start a podcast. But because <laughs> it was hard, not a lot of people were doing it, right? Um, and so we, we leveraged that and used that not only to sort of grow a platform and an audience, but also to grow connections to a lot of these writers that I was wanting to be like. Um, that plan turned into a book deal in 2013. Um, so that was the first book, Mr. Creativity. And then we were sort of off to the races. We kept the podcast going through the launch of my second book in 2016 under new management. And even right up until, until when Friend of a Friend, my most recent book came out, and then after that, we sort of pivoted. And now I like to say it's a podcast. Really, it's a daily video thing. But most people in like the corporate world don't understand the concept of a vlog and how that's different from a podcast. Mm -hmm. um, but now we're doing with the Daily Burke a daily two to three minute video that's sort of a helpful tip um, every single day posted on any platform, including LinkedIn, which is I think where we met mm -hmm. and started that conversation. And, and both the raw audio podcasting and this video thing have been um, just a tremendous ride for getting to know people, have really cool conversations, and then also sort of build a platform for which to share ideas out into the world. And so that's what I've been about. Yeah, I guess since January 2010 was the first ever episode of that podcast. And so we've been at it ever since then. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, is it is your podcast, are you still releasing episodes? So of the, of the Daily Burke, the video side, yes. The, gotcha. uh, the podcast, which... Uh, <laughs> has multiple different names, right? So Radio Free Leader was the name it was when we stopped it. It actually used to be called something different. I can't wow. tell you what it used to be called because we got a very strongly worded letter from the attorney representing the person that owned that trademark. And so we had to change our name. Wow. Um, so we, yeah, so we pivoted to, to Radio Free Leader. And we may, I mean, the, the, the feed, for all intents and purposes, the feed is dead. But the idea of long form raw audio conversations with sort of, friends and fellow authors of mine is something that I still kind of kick around. I'm, I'm debating doing what's really popular now is sort of mixing them, not unlike we're doing from afar, but I've got a lot of friends that were in podcasting that are now taking their camera with them and doing a joint sort of audio video show. So we debate, I, like I mean, that. there's, there's all sorts of projects uh, that, that we play around with. I think the biggest project for me right now is I'm actually looking at, I don't want to call it a podcast. It'll feel like a three or four hour long podcast, but it'll actually be sort of a, a book, right? Not a whole book length of like 70,000 words, but an idea that I had for a book that I think would actually be better represented as that sort of podcast feel. So who knows what that'll take? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's so many different ways you can go about, you know, not just podcasting, blogging and writing. And, uh, and that's another thing that I wanted to, to touch on you with is, um, is writing. Uh, I, last summer I endeavored into um, writing my own book and I'm still working with an editor out in Kansas City and it's a lo very long process. Um, I'm only 22 years old and I know a lot of my um, colleagues and people, you know, not necessarily that I work with in the roofing industry because they're not like the, the highest of, uh, of society, but a lot of my friends and like I said, colleagues, they have talked about that before. And I, I feel like a lot of people, David, are um, fearful of 
you know, how to start, when to start, should I yeah. start writing my own book? Talk a little bit about, um, about that. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I feel for you. It's a, an absolutely horrible addiction. Yeah. Um, but, but like any other horrible addiction, there's a thrill side to it too. Right. Um, absolutely. no, I mean, I, I think it's really interesting for me. It's on the nonfiction side, writing a book, in, I think involves three phases. The research phase comes first. What do you figure out what you want to talk about? If you're just writing the sort of entrepreneurial memoir, then that phase is actually really short. And that's a shame because I think it's the act of going out and finding the stories that represent the point that you're going to make and the studies mm -hmm. that back it up and, and sort of doing all that research component. That part fascinates me because I get to learn something really, really cool. Right. right? And then, and this is in the, this is the slog that you're in. There is the writing 500 to a thousand words a day, going over it again and again and again with an editor until it's perfected. Mm-hmm. That part's horrible. I've I've never met anybody that enjoys that part. Um, the, actually, I stand corrected. The only people I know that enjoy that part are the people that are like, "Oh yeah, well, I just I check into the Ritz Carlton and I order a mojito and sit out by the pool and type all day." I'm like, I don't know how you have that much money to do that, but that does sound fun. Um, but but beyond that, that's a really hard slog. When you're done with that slog, though, you get to go talk about the ideas in the book, to promote the book and, and do all that sort of stuff. That part's really, really fun again, right? Mm -hmm. So really, it's like there's three phases. Two out of the three of them are awesome, which I think is encouraging. Now, all of that to say, I think a lot of people skip that first step and dive right into that typing piece. Mm -hmm. And I think the research side is crucial. I tell everybody, even if you're going to like self-publish your book, even if all you're going to do is like print it on your own printer and hand copies to your grandkids. Mm -hmm. I think everybody should write a book proposal, which was a tool that in the, when traditional publishing sort of ruled the roost, it was a tool that you had to use to get a traditional publisher to want to publish your book. But it's a tool that's still useful now because it encapsulates that whole, what is the book about? What does each chapter look like? What stories and research go into which chapters? How are, what's your marketing plan ahead of time? So that mm -hmm. once you're done writing the book, like it's, you're going to have such little energy when you're finished writing the book. You won't have the energy to design a marketing plan. It's better to do it on the front end when you're still excited about the idea and then you just execute, right? Mm -hmm. So that's my, my biggest piece of advice for a lot of people that are in this stage of wanting to do this is start with that proposal. There's a million formats you can use. Just Google writing a book proposal and you'll find all sorts of stuff. But do force yourself to do that because it'll force you to think through a lot of stuff on the front end that will make everything else easier. Right on. That's a very good. That's a very good piece of advice because even myself, I, I failed to you know failed to do that to set up a marketing campaign in the very beginning. You know, I knew how I wanted to do it, but I I kind of just started writing and then it, it it went from there. But um, that's a very good piece of advice for for anyone you know starting starting a book because that is true. Your energy level does deplete throughout the process. Totally, and I think you know a lot of people complain about writer's block. For example, I. Mm -hmm. I have never in, in writing three books and working on a fourth project now, I've never experienced writer's block. And the reason is that I've done the research ahead of time and I've done the proposal ahead of time. I may struggle over how to phrase a certain idea, but I'm never at a loss for what to write because I've already got that planned out. And so the act of writing is the act of kind of following that roadmap. Um, and I think, again, for a lot of people who are just starting out for the first time, they're like, oh, I got this. And then they sit at that right. blank screen in Microsoft Word, and it's like terrifying. And, and I feel for them, and I want to like cuddle up to them and say, oh, it's just writer's block and it passes. But the truth is, it's like, no, go back and do your research. You're not actually ready to write yet. Right. What would you say about, um, that's great. What would you say about like perspective and how 
we all have because I I've really wanted to to hit this topic hard because I have run into a lot of people, like I said, who want to write a book, but they just feel as though their story isn't good enough or they wouldn't know what to talk about. Talk talk a little bit about how important every single person, like there's what, 7.6 or 7.7 billion of us on this planet. I personally feel as though everyone has a certain perspective. They've all experienced something different, hence a story, hence a potential book. Um, what's your thought on that? Yeah. Um, my, so my friend Nila from Merchant has this concept she calls onlyness, which mm. is this idea that there is, it's that perspective piece. There is a point of view and a perspective and an idea that only you can share because only you occupy that specific place in the universe, right? Um, now, what I will say is that I think a lot of people, like, I love those phrases of like, everyone has a book in them. That may or may not be true. Everyone has an amazing idea in them that mm. is manifest in the world because of that place that only they um, occupy it. It may take the form of a book, a 40 to 80,000 word written thing. It may take the form of something else, but like we need your perspective. We need you to make something, right? I don't, I don't, it doesn't necessarily have to be a book, no, that... but make something that encapsulates your experience because we need to hear it. I like that. I like that a lot because that phrase is passed around. You know, everyone has a book in them and an offer, an offer. Right. But yet some people actually just have a 2000 word medium article, you know, and, <laughs> right. that's, and that's fine. And those things get passed around. And, and truthfully, like from a pure shareability standpoint, a book is still a pretty hard medium to share an idea in. So you Absolutely. may actually consider if you think you have a book in you, what's a shorter, smaller, more easily shared medium by which that I could express this idea. And then based on the reaction, the world's reaction to that, I can shape that. And maybe that turns into that long form thing. Right. David, I see the, uh, see behind you, your background is a bookshelf. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, yeah. T- uh, talk about, I, I could probably assume that you're a big reader. <laughs> talk about, <laughs> talk yeah, about, well, yeah. What, what I was going to joke is these are, these are actually other, other than the middle, like the middle is books that I've written that just makes a nice backdrop for a video. That's super right? cool. Um, like but the, the other side, the, this is actually the to read shelf. So these are books to that write. I have that I haven't had a chance to read outside of this door um, over to my left is uh, for, I call it the library. It's really a room with bookshelves on two walls, right? I think a library should probably have four walls of books, but this is two. <laughs> I uh, but it's a, it's a lot more shelves, and that's where the books sort of that we have um, read comes from. And it, so to, to go back to our point, right? So everybody has got a unique perspective, an onlyness perspective, to use Nilifer's term. That they've got an idea that only they can put out in the world because only they have their experiences and they occupy their place in the world, right? Right. If that's the case, then books are still one of the cheapest possible mediums for getting to learn that person's idea. Right. There's other there's other stuff that, you know, you could do like a an article, a podcast, what have you. But in general, like a, a book is usually somebody took their entire life story or their entire history of them starting a company or an entire well-researched like an academic language, what we'd call a thesis. And they've condensed it down into something that takes five to six hours to transfer it from their brain to your brain. And it usually costs less than $20. That's an amazing deal, right? If you just, if you just think about it for, for half a second, you're like, I can, it's, it's almost like sort of inception, right? You see the lengths that Leonardo DiCaprio and those crew did to put an idea in someone's head. Anytime I pull one of these off the shelf and start reading it, somebody else is inceptioning me and putting that idea in my head. And all I had to do was pay like 1675, 
right? Uh, so it's an amazing deal. So I'm, I'm a huge advocate of it. I actually do this thing uh, on, on all my social media accounts called Read with Burke. It's just, it's a, truthfully, I started it as a hashtag so that I could see a past listing of what I've read recently. Right. Um, but it's turned into this whole thing where I try and read uh, somewhere between 100 to 120 books a year. Ebooks and audiobooks count, by the way. That's how we get to that high of a number. So, no offense to the medium of podcasting, but I'm usually listening to, to audiobooks in the car more often than I am podcasts. Yeah. I go back and forth. I like um, that. Wow. And the whole the whole reason again is that like it's an amazing deal that all I have to do is invest a tiny bit of time, and I get to benefit from somebody else's sort of whole perspective, whole life, et cetera. My dad always had this phrase, this saying that stuck with me, which is said that experience is the best teacher, but you can get it a whole lot cheaper when it's someone else's experience. And so that's what I think about when I think about reading, learning, et cetera, is, is yeah, there's some things you got to experience on your own, but I can get a whole lot of other people's experiences real cheap if I'm willing to keep an open mind. Oh my gosh, that was excellent. Thank you for sharing. That, that was a, that was a lot of good points. I have two things I want to bring up, uh, bring up from that first, before I forget top three reads for someone who is just getting into the reading world. So we'll hit that first. <laughs> top three reads, if you could suggest three books. Uh, top three reads. I know reads. that's hard. That's hard. Can I do, so can I do authors instead, right? Or, yeah, um, you, sure. Okay, all right, so I'm a, books. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So I think, especially if you're getting into reading in the nonfiction space, I think there's a lot of authors that are too prescriptive and not solid enough as sort of storytellers. Right. And so I would obviously recommend, now every one of these people I wish was a little bit more prescriptive and from the science perspective, I wish was a little more true to like the wealth of research instead of cherry picking. However, yeah. if they're where you're going to start, these people are fascinating. So Malcolm Gladwell is an obvious one. Um, Chip and Dan Heath, the Heath brothers are also just fantastic. And they're, they do a little bit better job of staying true to the research than, than Gladwell, but they're incredible storytellers too. And the last one is a little bit more unknown is a guy named Shane Snow. He's written two books. He's a journalist based out of New York. His first one's called Smart Cuts. That's really, really good about how sort of people, not unlike yourself, how people achieve things really awesome at a young age. And usually they do it by not finding shortcuts, but finding sort of smart cuts ways to kind of hack it together. His most recent one, which is ironically, I think, is not performing as well as the first one, but I think is better, mm -hmm. is called Dream Teams. And it's all about the research and human behavior about what makes a team actually thrive. Um, and again, the, the reason all of these people have fascinating ideas, but the reason I recommend those three is that you can sort of fall in love with reading while you read them. They're such brilliant storytellers that you'll be far more entertained than like, uh, those sort of higher, more intellectual, uh, for lack of a better term, frou-frou books that are a, a total slog to read through. Um, all, all three of those people are just um, amazing to read through. They're always sort of opening up questions in your mind and then answering them a couple pages later. And it's, some of it's like reading a mystery novel. It's fantastic. So those would be where I, those three authors would be where I'd start. Right. No, that's great. I, and I think that um, when I first started reading, I used to hate reading. Like before last year, I used to just not a lot of people think it's very boring. You're sitting there. You're not getting anything done. Um, and I, I think that's good what you said about it's easy to, to get into. It's easy to, to capture your attention. And, and for you know, if, if you give someone so, uh, a certain novel or, or a read that it's not doesn't capture their attention off the, off the bat, they're going to be like, why the hell am I doing this anyways? What am I getting out of this book? Right. So – you know, right. I mean, learning, learning the love of reading consistently is way more important. You mm -hmm. want to get, and I almost don't care what you read, but you, I want to get people to the point 
where like I have pretty much always have a book or an audio, like an audiobook load on my phone. Even if I'm, if I'm like, like I just get, I don't know if you could tell, I just got back from a haircut, but like on the way to drive <laughs> there, I grabbed a book, right? Because it was like, just in case I'm delayed, like she said 1230, but just in case she can't make it, like, I don't want to waste this time. Right. So let me bring this, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You want to get to that level of love with it. So choose your early authors wisely, because if you open something that like, like I'll, this never ceases to amaze me. There's a book that came out a couple of years ago called Capital by Thomas Piketty. He's an okay. economist. He's French. So then he had to translate it in English. It's wow. a, I don't know how it became an international bestseller because it's a super boring read, right? It's a great idea, <laughs> but it is super boring. Hmm. If you're just starting out, that, that would ruin your love of reading for years, right? So start with the, the authors that are known great storytellers because they'll imbue that sort of love of reading. And I, by the way, like I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. My seven-year-old's a pretty good reader. And wow. like we buy him some of the most ridiculous books. We I, I buy him books from like YouTubers sometimes because I know he watches a lot of YouTube. And I'm like, what I'm trying to get in you it's is a love of reading. I don't care who the author is at this point. It'll serve you well down the road if you just get in love with that idea. Right. Now that's something something that I hope to do with my, you know, once I have kids one day, That's that's brilliant. I think that that's where we're, as a uh, correct me if I'm wrong or your opinion where we're going wrong with um, with teaching our kids. I mean, like seven, eight year olds now have cell phones. They can scroll on social media and and it's uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I go back and forth on this. Right. So to, I do, just too. To, just to pick on my seven year old, like it's a we have more tools than ever before to keep from being bored. The question mm -hmm. is whether or not we use them to grow or whether or not we just use them to keep from being bored. Right. So like I, I start to get really I actually I, I, I don't mind how much time my seven year old spends on his, his phone. It's an old iPod touch that I used to have because I got tired of handing him my phone. Um, I care about what he's actually watching. Right. If he's just watching some gamer live stream themselves playing, you know, Super Mario Odyssey, then that's a problem. Right. But his like one of his favorite YouTube channels is a channel called Colossal Questions. And it's just literally like. It's questions a seven-year-old would ask, like how many Empire State Buildings would you have to put on top of each other to get to Mount Everest, right? And it's these really cool, like three or four minute videos that are answering questions and feeding his curiosity and subtly feeding him that idea that if you're curious, the answers are out there. I don't mind your use of that medium at all, right? Not at all. So no. I sort of heavily monitor um, that what he's watching, but I don't worry so much about the time he spends doing it. It's much more about what are you doing on, with this tool? This, I mean, and you could say the same thing with reading, right? Like we, we always say reading is better than YouTube, like, well, but not if they're reading smut, right? Not if, if you're 22 yeah. years old and, or sorry, not to say 22, cause you're 22, but no, like, you're fine. You're if you're, if you're younger and you're reading like celebrity biographies, then there, there might be a little bit to learn from that. But like, I don't really care to read Paris Hilton's autobiography that was ghostwritten by seven right. people and whatever, right? right? Yeah. So whatever the tool is, whether it's a current you know device and a thing like YouTube or whether it's an old school book, it's that content uh, that that matters. And he spent a lot of time to prove my point about fall in love with uh, with reading or fall fall in love with YouTube. I guess he spent a lot of time watching dumb stuff, and we sort of subtly pointed him to these other channels that were a bit more about learning, like Colossal Questions or TED Ed. Um, and those sort of things, uh, because once he has sort of the habit, now we use the habit to encourage the learning, if that makes any sense. No, absolutely. It does. Um, formal education or, uh, or reading? 
I know that's a very like. So I'm sorry. So like, should you go to college or should you just buy a bunch of books? I, I, I this is a very broad topic. I, I I'm fully aware of that, but yeah. For, for uh, people out there that think like college is the, obviously if you want to become a nurse or a doctor or an attorney, you need to go to get the specific degree. But I went to school. I just graduated from Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers. I got my entrepreneurship degree. Did I need to go to school? No, but I was on a uh, full ride for finance. My parents went through bankruptcy back in 08, 09, and I applied for the scholarship and it was the perfect timing. So I went to school for free. I didn't come out in debt. I'm very lucky. Yeah. A lot of my friends are coming out with 60, 80, a hundred thousand dollars in debt. And I fell in love. I, I have a severe passion for reading now. I fell mm. in love with it last April in 2018. And well, I realized this, I, I got both perspectives. I got the right, reading yeah. perspective, all the knowledge I'm learning from that, all the awesome authors. And then I see the formal educational system and I see how a lot of professors shouldn't be teaching. And it's just, they're two separate things. I wanted to see what you thought of, of that. Yeah. I mean, I think you really have to know uh, how much internal drive you actually have. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'll say this is I was a full-time professor in a business school for six years. I still teach a class every once in a while. Um, I don't know a lot of really intrinsically driven 18 year olds. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't know a lot of sort of worldwide 18 year olds. I know a lot of people who think they are, but like you need to know more than how to use Snapchat to survive in the world. Right. Um, and so if you're, if you're not one of those incredibly driven people, uh, then I think college is actually a great idea for you because you have a better chance of finding it, but also like will force you to learn something. Right. right. It may, you may, you will definitely not learn it as well as if you were intrinsically driven and you learned it by yourself, but we'll force it on you the same way we've been doing for the 12 years prior. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but you could also like, so you could also flip that and say, if you were that sort of intrinsically, like I know out of every, you know, let's say 25 students that are what I just described. I know one of them who graduates in two and a half years because she'll take a full load of classes during the summer and is actually balancing like super cheap community college for general eds with a private school for her major so that she's got a degree from a well-known school, but had mm. paid half the price because she's smart and she figured out how to work the system. Like, so there's still that sort of benefit um, there as well. Now, all of that to say, there's this whole other problem, which is, it's, it is, it's not that it's way too expensive. It's that people, it's like a, it's like a, I don't know. It's like used car sales at this point. People default to spending way too much money on brand names that they think are value. When in reality, like the textbook at Harvard and the textbook over here is the same textbook, right? There is a difference in the quality of sort of student interactions and that sort of stuff. But like, if you didn't get into Harvard, paying a Harvard level price for your local private snooty school, when like this is free, like where I live, you if you graduate from any school in our county, you can go to the county community college for free for two years. And then you can seamlessly transfer that to one of the two state schools, University of Oklahoma or Oklahoma State, both of which are good, well-known schools and do your second two years and pay. You know, you could get out having paid a total sticker price of like less than twenty thousand dollars for a degree from a, a big 12 land grant school, right? So there's right. still ways to do it where you're not taking that 60 or 80 grand debt. I think a lot of people default to just letting other people make decisions 
uh, about them and just sign here and we'll take care of it all. And you worry about going to play Halo in the dorm with somebody. And then you turn around four years later and you have $80,000 in debt because you didn't think about it. Mm -hmm. And that can get really dangerous. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's a really long and non-definitive answer to your question, but it's because it's so situational. It starts from knowing you and whether or not you're that person. Right. I will tell Absolutely. you that when my kids are approaching that age, what will be the, the number one governing thing on their mind is as as their dad, how driven have I seen them be? Do I trust them to be able to take the same value, get the same value out of four years of their own self-directed education or not? That's the question that we'll be answering. Right. So with that being said, how uh, would you say parenting is a lot of the, I don't want to say issue, but with our, with my generation, with, you know, 16 to, to 24, 25 year olds, there's a lot of, um, it's different. I know generations change from one to the other, but would you say parenting has a lot to do with that? No, I mean, I, I think... Maybe. I mean, I, I think predominantly the way that we've marketed colleges over the last 30 years is, is a, has a way bigger thing to do with it. I think we've, right. we've sold the up and coming generation on this idea that the only way to get middle class or upper middle class in America is with a college degree. And like, that's quite simply not true. I, I know a lot of welders that make the same amount of money as journalism majors. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that issue. Right. Um, I think we, we don't, I think the other thing, and this may be where parenting comes into play, is we've been really focused on building people's self-esteem and not their self-efficacy, right? Self-esteem is how do I feel about myself, right? Just do I feel like I'm valuable, I'm good at stuff, et cetera. Self-efficacy is do I know whether or not I can do that specific challenge, right? Self-esteem is something you always have. Self-efficacy changes by the demands of the day, right? Whether or not you have confidence in your ability to do something or not. And I think, especially in school, we just blended them both, right? We wanted people mm -hmm. who, who, had, who were bad at math to have high self-esteem. They don't need that. They need high self-efficacy. And the only way you get that is by being good at math, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that translates into the idea that, oh, college is for everyone and everyone benefits from going to college. And you, you only get that when you're so sort of deluded about um, how everyone is this, that like, I'm sorry, it just doesn't work that way. College is not for everyone. Trade school is for a lot of people. Jumping straight into the military is for a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. Risking it all and touring around in a VW camper van and trying to be a musician is for some people, right? Yep. Uh, there is no one path for every 18 year old in America. And the, the reason I think we got there is that combination of every, we, we sold people on the idea that that was the only path to being happy and successful. And we were also unwilling to point out to some people that like, actually, you're not cut out for this and we should mm -hmm. think about other paths. Right. What's one, what's one piece of advice you'd, uh, you'd give then to uh, someone in, in my spot, just coming out of, uh, just coming out of college, fresh into the new world. Um, oh man. What, um, what would you say to, to someone like that? You know, I, so I was just talking about this the other day with another sort of middle-aged friend of mine. I don't know if I can, I guess I'm middle-aged now. That sounds weird saying that. <laughs> uh, well, well, like, so I'm third, as I'm recording this, I'm 35 years old, which is still pretty okay. young. Uh, I think so. Except that like, if you figure we're, we're going to live to 90, then I am definitely in the second third of, so that's a little, so I'm in, definitely in the middle. I'm just in the beginning of the middle. Right. Um, anyway, I was just talking about this the other day and my honestly, my advice to a 21, 22 year old is risk it all for 18 to 24 months. Mm. Like whatever that thing you want to do is the, the cost of failing at 22 years old is so ridiculously low that you might as well try it. Right. Yeah. 
Um, however, put a time limit on it, right? Don't be 29 years old with like no future outlook on your career, no long-term relationship with somebody else, right? No, no, none of that because you're living this dream that you're going to be a famous rapper or whatever. Um, but when you're, when you're 21, 22, 23, risk it all, but set a time limit. And, and mm-hmm. so, I mean, I say this even when dealing with like kids dealing with the parents, like tell your parents, like, Hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this, but we are going to judge uh, like on June 1st, 2021, we're going to ask ourselves these five questions and these five questions will judge whether or not this risk was worth it. And if it is, I'll keep going. And if it's not, then I'll go do, you know, then, then we'll go do something else, et cetera. Um, but the cost of failing, like you could, you could try in, in 24 months, you could try like three different things, throw your all into it, fail in every single one of them. And employers looking to hire you would still not think that's weird anymore. Right. 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 Still like 24 years. So yeah, risk it all, but set a time limit on when you're going to wake up and realize it's not working. And some of you will find, well, it's working and let's keep going down this path. Right. And I think that's crucial, David, is setting it, setting a time limit because so many people, first of all, it's important to, in my opinion, to chase your dreams. It's something my mom always taught me and, and just going after what you want to do. But that time limit is very, uh, I'd say very important too. Jeez. Yeah. Well, and that's, and you, you mentioned your mom, that, that's the risk I think for a lot of parents is that idea, right? That if I approve of this, chase your dream and chase this sort of silly thing, then what I'm condemning them to is a life like living in a tent on the side of a mountain, working as a ski instructor or whatever, like, because that, because they wanted to be an X games champion or something ridiculous like that. Like, no, you, you, it's possible to let them risk it all and still bring them back into the fold if it's not working. Right. Mm. Uh, But I think everybody thinks that at, you know, that that's, and the, the irony about this is that most of these parents are people who went to school to learn one thing and ended up doing something else. So like their life is proof that this is going to happen at some point in their twenties. So why not just let that kid risk it? Right. But be very clear on what the time limit is and what the metrics of success are before you leave, right. Before you start that 18 month long endeavor, be very clear about what you're both agreeing is going to be the metric of success. That way you can't lie to yourself at 18 months and buy yourself more time. Right. right? Um, but, but that's exactly what it is. I mean, I, I, I did this on a small scale in sort of my own life. So I got right out. And like I said, I was, I was, um, I was a, a grad student and I was married. I was married. I still am, but she's not a student anymore. Married to a medical student. And mm-hmm. so I, I had this like timeline on when she was going to get out of medical school and residency and, and other stuff. And so I was working in a job that I don't even want to mention it because it was just sort of, I don't, I don't want to get sued for slander because it was so ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but when I finally got tired of it, I wrote a resignation letter and like I told my wife, okay, this is what I'm going after, right? Here's a resignation letter dated for a year from now. If I haven't figured out a way to amicably quit the job because I can do this other thing, go ahead and just mail this letter, right? Because mm-hmm. we're going to be fine anyway. You're now going to start your practice and we're all going to be fine. But like I'm committing now to finding that sort of path. And so I'm a big fan of that time limits idea or what the fancy psychological term, by the way, is a commitment device. Um, so I think it'll help you not only that. The reason I bring this up, I think it'll help you not only from the standpoint of you can risk it all and then come back from it at 18 to 24 months. You will work harder knowing that you only have 18 months to succeed or 24 months to succeed on this thing. Uh, and after that, you've got to call it and call it a fa- call it what it is, a failure, et cetera. You'll work way harder than if you've got this unlimited timeline. So I'm a huge fan of that timeline thing from a variety of different perspectives. 
So it'll it almost like you said in that short time period it'll push you to go harder and your your success rate's likely gonna skyrocket I would say because you're exactly like forcing yourself exactly. So the, so what about a, a plan B? I hear about it all the time. Um, you know, especially like older people like looking down on someone my age, twenty two years old. Always have a plan B. Have a plan B. But then I I'm big into motivation. That's why I have this podcast and mm. that word relentless. I'm I always hear on these videos and from massively successful people, you know, there's this, this thing going around, you know, don't have a plan B go after what you really want to do and keep hitting it, keep hitting it, keep hitting it. But then what if like, like you said, in 18 to 24 months, that thing, that dream, do you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so I'll give you two different answers here. Um, the, The first comes from the research and that is that most successful entrepreneurs actually had a plan B. Right. Okay. I mean, either they had like a written out, this is what I'll do, or they had a skill set and a marketable degree and a, and a, a, I know that if this fails, I'll be okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, my thought behind all of that is the rationale is that like, when you're worried way too much about like putting food on the table, that, that removes some of your creative energy and some of your just sheer sort of willpower with some of the ego depletion um, towards pursuing that thing you want to do. Right. And we know this on a large scale. We even know it in the lab when like when we get people to worry about how much money they're going to make when they solve certain puzzles, they solve less puzzles because they're more worried about losing money by not performing well. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's why that plan B sort of works in that context. That said, though, that isn't what that plan B is very different from uh, always knowing at any given moment, well, I could just quit this whole thing and, and move off. Right. It, it, it's knowing that I'm going to be okay because I've got a degree and a marketable skill set and a this and a that. Like I know what I can turn to if my thing is a failure, but I'm just going to mentally push that over here again for that period of time that I'm pursuing this thing, right? So they all had plan Bs, but they all also had their trigger of like, what is going to trigger plan B? And if we're mm-hmm. not there yet, then there is no plan B. I'm just pursuing this other thing, right? Not to bring it back to the time limits thing again, but that's no. the easiest way to do it, Right. Right. is to know you've got other options, but know that I'm just not even going to, I'm going to ignore them for the next 18 to 24 months while I focus in on this, this thing as if there is no plan B. Right. But still have it written out ahead of time. So when you do get to that point, if like you were saying. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, wouldn't even, I wouldn't even go so far as having it written out. I would just know, like I know what my, you have an entrepreneurship degree, right? That means mm-hmm. that you have a basic business degree plus a couple other things. So like you could go get a job in any small business in your town tomorrow right? If right. your business doesn't work. So that, and that's what I mean when I say a plan B. It's not a full written out. If this doesn't work, I'm going to go be an accountant. Like, no, gotcha. but it's just that, it's just that yeah. awareness that like, if this fails and it fails because of these reasons, right? Because I've decided that ahead of time, I have options. So I guess I wouldn't even call it a plan B. I would call it like option B. I know that there are mm. other options in the world. I'm not focused on them right now, but I can take comfort in knowing that they're there. Like, quite frankly, like, <laughs> My option B right now, right, is if I totally suck at this whole writer speaker thing, I'm going to go be a stay at home dad for a while, right? Or I could go back into full time in the university life. Neither of those options are all that appealing to me, but I like to know they're there. I don't have a plan for when I'm going to execute them, but it's easier to pursue everything knowing that like, what's the worst that could happen? It's not me being homeless. It's me doing a job I didn't actually want for a couple of years because the thing I wanted didn't work out. Right. I th- I don't think you could have explained that any any better. That was great, David. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> right on. Um, 
I want to get into the, the topic as we're kind of approaching the end here of, of speaking. You're a TEDx speaker, TED speaker. That's pretty darn cool. And it has over 2 million views. So yeah, it's up there. And I, and I want, I want you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I've had, I've had three TEDx talks, one of which got upgraded, shall we say to a TED talk in the sense that like, it's a really weird feeling. They, you give it at a TEDx event, you, you think, oh, it's going to do okay. And then the people from TED, like email the organizer and say, give us all the raw footage, the raw audio, the photos you have from it. And they take the TEDx down and they re-edit it. And they, mm -hmm. in my case, they shaved 11 seconds off of it. I still have no idea what I said in those 11 seconds that they cut out. Uh, <laughs> and then they post it back on TED.com as if it happened at the conference, right? Uh, um, which is crazy and cool. And that's the one that has, you know, 2 million plus views. Yeah. Um, I will say, like, speaking is a really weird world where I think everybody thinks um, they can do it. And a lot of people think they can do about sort of everything, you know. But I think it's a world where people really need to know what uh, archetype of speaker that they are, right? And this is this is still really raw in my head. I've been talking with a couple of friends that do this, is that speak as like their whole income. Mm -hmm. And I sort of divide it into like, I think there's four types of like professional speakers, people who can make a living or at least make a decent amount of money speaking. I think you have your thinkers, which are people, I would count myself in this, your, your job is to present ideas um, to the, the audience of people. You get known because you, you publish those ideas in other places, like on a podcast or like in HBR that I write for often or like in books, right? Um, and then you get invitations to go expand on those ideas with a certain audience. You end up doing a lot of corporate gigs, um, you know, working with a lot of individual companies as opposed to speaking at these sort of mega conferences and what have you. Um, but it's, it's a fun life. And you actually get to sort of have face time with people that one day you might write about their company, which is kind of cool. Then you've got your performers and your performers, I would count sort of your motivational speaker people in here too. Mm -hmm. Like this doesn't mean that they're not thinkers, but the, the thing that they're trying to do in that hour or half hour on stage is to convey an emotion. Right. Mm. Um, so I would count people like, I mean, like he might think of himself as a thinker, but I would count Gary Vaynerchuk as a performer. Right. Um, or Tom Bilyeu as a buddy of mm -hmm. mine that I would count as a performer. He's going to evoke an emotion out of you. And that's what people are paying for. Right. Um, and, and there's other performers that are like more true to the concept of performers. One of my buddies is a, is a, for lack of a better term, a motivational magician, right? Like he does this amazing Hand, sleight of hand magic tricks while, to illustrate a point about how teams can come together and work. It's mind blowing, right? It's an amazing yeah. sort of performance, right? Um, so you get thinker, you got performer. Then I think you have the, uh, for lack of a better term, celebrity. You're just famous for something else. And so you're going to get, you're getting paid to appear. So mm -hmm. I've spoken at conferences where like the other keynoter was uh, the guy that won the Super Bowl for the Dallas Cowboys 10 years ago or whatever. And like, you're there because people want to take a photo with you, right? And they, and they want to say, you, yeah. right. And they want to say that you're there. Um, and then the last one I would count is sort of the consultant, which is that I don't care what stage I'm on and I don't care if I'm making a fee or whatever, but I'm speaking in order to generate leads for a client, all that sort of thing. My advice to a lot of people who are saying, I want to get more involved in speaking is know which of those business models you're in because how you promote yourself is very, very different, right? If you're a thinker, what matters is putting out those ideas into the world in a variety of different mediums. So are you writing regularly for publications that are getting seen by people? Are you putting out a podcast or video content all of the time? Are you doing like we chase down Ted talks for that reason, right? Mm. 
If you're a performer, then that doesn't matter so much as knowing how to work kind of the referral market. You spoke at this association and knowing how to have everybody who's excited about that recommend you for their thing that's going to happen six months down the road, right? So the referral business is much more important in that set. I mean, if you're a celebrity, do the things that celebrities do to get famous. I don't know how to do that one, but you know, you probably had a celebrity on your show at some point. So you tell, you know, you could tell me, um, and then again, and, and then if you're a consultant, then you can be that person where you say, you just start speaking on any stage and sort of build up from there. Mm-hmm. I think that the start speaking on any stage thing is actually pretty bad advice for people that are in that thinker or performer state, because you end up speaking at like the local library where people don't understand what you are trying to do. Right. Um, but again, if you're in that consultant space and the whole point is to, to sell something on the back end, then yeah, taking an hour and speaking to a group of 40 people at a library or a right. chamber of commerce or something that can still be hugely profitable to you. Right. Um, but you got to know what, what model you're in ahead of time. And then every that, that affects everything else about how you develop. I'm less right. concerned, for example, with the mechanics of my talk. Now I have speech coaches and I'm, I'm I don't want to be boring and atrocious, but I don't have to be as amazing as my magician friend, for example, or as emotional, inspirational as like Tom Bilyeu, because I'm trying to do something a little bit different, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to get you to feel an emotion. I'm trying to get you to go, huh, I never thought about it that way, right? Um, and that takes a different sort of skill on stage. So you, I think you've got to narrow it down to that. What do you want to be first? And then um, a lot of decisions are much easier to make once you know that. So for example, like there's a lot of people in the world that want to do a TEDx talk or a TED talk, but they're performers or they're consultants, mm. right? And that's not the right platform for you. You might, you might, you, you probably never even get hired to do one. But then even if you do, like the people that share, the people that watch regularly watch TED and TEDx talks, the audience is looking for thinkers. They're not looking for performers. Right. Mm. And so they're not going to share it. You need to go some other, you know, some other place where you can be. You might actually want to do your own events so you can control camera angles better and come up with a way better piece of content to get shared around. For example, it's all, it's very, very different, but it starts with figuring out which of those four are you going to be. And by the way, like I said, there may be more than four. This is an idea that like I had maybe two months ago and I'm still flushing it out. Yeah, no, that's great. You just like sparked a whole lot of different ideas in my head because that, that reminds me of just like, like I'm business oriented, right? Like my mind mm-hmm. is like completely business and that just, that's like your specific niche. Like what, like I'm yeah. still figuring out what niche I want to be in with fitness and with writing and podcasting and I'm still figuring all that out. And I didn't really think, I just, I categorize, and I'm sure a lot of people do the same thing. Categorize speaking is just one, you're a speaker. It's not like that. That's- yeah. Oh no, 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 it's not. And, and you know, I've, I've got friends that'll, that'll, uh, it'll divvy it up in different ways, right? Like uh, my buddy Andrew Davis, is, who's a great sort of performer, will always say that there is um, there are speakers who fill seats, celebrities, and there's speakers mm. speakers who fill minds, right? I like that. Um, and again, to use sort of a Gary Vee or Tom Bilyeu example, like in terms of landing speaking gigs, what they do off stage can become sort of hugely valuable. The the, sh- the sheer number of video clips. 20 second video clips of Gary V mm-hmm. that builds his popularity such to where now he's a, he's almost celebrity at this point where people are booking him just to say they book him. Mm-hmm. That's a different way you market than when you're sort of that thinker space. Right. Um, so yeah, it, it, you have to sort of identify that first. And I think truthfully, I think that model um, resonates a whole lot more. Like I can even think in the fitness space about what I would call sort of thinkers versus 
inspires, et cetera. Like um, one of my buddies, Ben Greenfield is always running like tests on himself, right? Mm -hmm. He's that sort of fitness thinker. Like he's trying to find stuff. Then you've got like the, this is awful because I'm not a big fan of hers, but like the Jillian Michaels who are just trying to be inspirational. Like there's nothing Mm -hmm. new. They're not trying to find, like, I think she even like slammed everything about keto at one point, again, because her model- Right. Her model is not, I'm trying to figure out what the cutting edge in health science is. Her model is, I'm trying to motivate people to get off their butt and get to the gym, right? Again, two different models. So you got to know which which business model you're going to go after. And I, in a weird way to make it all the way like full circle, it's kind of like doing a book proposal before a book, right? Mm-hmm. If you answer those questions ahead of time, the rest of it gets way easier. So it really all comes down to questioning. If you can question what you're doing and what, you know... I think it's yeah. important, right? Questioning. Yeah. Oh, totally. There's a yeah. there's an awesome quote from uh, Thomas Jefferson. The irony is that he was an atheist who said he said something <laughs> like, "Question boldly even the existence of God, because if there be a God, surely He must prefer honest questions to blind faith." Um, and and I, I I love that idea. Again, the irony is Jefferson sort of turned out to be an atheist, but I I'm in agreement with him that there there is yeah. a God, and he probably questions. He probably you know like honors questioning more than just blind obedience. Yeah, no, I like that quote. I'm going to put that in the show notes after this. That's uh, I like that. <laughs> I, I haven't heard that one yet. That's good. Um, David. It may not we... actually be a Jefferson quote. I'm sure I just read it on Instagram somewhere, it's, but it stuck with it's, me. It, no, I like it. I'm going to go back after this. And uh, like I said, I'm going to plug it in the show notes for the, uh, for the listeners. I like that a lot. Cool. Um, bef- before we close up and I ask my final question, where can, uh, where can the listeners of The Relentless Life find you? Yeah, well, so the show notes for this episode are probably a pretty good place, right? Because we're going to have the quote and lots of other mm-hmm. links, and et cetera. Um, I'm, honestly, this part's really easy for me. David Burkus, B-U-R-K-U-S, is very, there's not a lot of us. There's maybe three in the world that I've run into. <laughs> right. And I occupy the entire first page of Google. So if you, if you type you that in, you, you will find uh, cool. where to connect with me just awesome. through Google. Right on. You're on social media. Link. Obviously, we connect on LinkedIn. And- yeah, yeah. And, and truthfully, like whatever your preferred one is, I'm probably there. My mm-hmm. preference would be if you if you're active on LinkedIn, I'd love to connect with you there because I think the conversations that are happening in 2019 oh on gosh. LinkedIn are awesome. Yes, um, they're they're what I think people wish Facebook would have been. Um, so that's where I candidly, I'd love to connect with people more there. Yeah, that's where we connected, and that's where yeah. I've been. I'm sure you're the same way. You've been connecting with some really like-minded and just it's just it's such a valuable platform LinkedIn. oh totally and i mean the, the content now that they're now that they've rolled out video to everybody and that sort mm-hmm. of stuff the, the content that's being put out there is just way better than what's on facebook watch or insta igtv or any of those sort of things so yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um david uh final question this the show is uh is called the relentless life and that word uh holds a very special meaning to me i i would like to know what that what relentless means to you when you when you think of it yeah so um you know i think probably one of the themes of the show that we've been talking about is this idea that i don't think relentless means that you're consistently pursuing the same thing for your entire life i think it means that whatever you've got in front of you, you you're pursuing it consistently and then when mm-hmm. you pivot you don't you don't spend a lot of time moaning about how it didn't happen and blah 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 you just picked that new thing and now you're relentless on that i think that sort of temporary relentlessness to multiple different things throughout your life will serve you way more than trying to relentlessly pursue just one thing your whole life. 
Right. No, I like that. That's the first time that any, any of my guests have, have incorporated that word pivoting with relentless. And that's, that's just life. You're not just going to say, this is it. And until the day I die, it's just one straight. So yeah. That was oh no, I mean, totally. And again, and again, it's not, we've talked about a lot in the context of trying something and failing, but mm-hmm. sometimes life just happens, right? Like I was dedicated relentless to this life of a writer, speaker, et cetera. And then we got our first ultrasound. And now I will tell you that like, Mm-hmm. I'm totally okay being a failed C-list author and a speaker that only ever talks at like the Sheboygan Chamber of Commerce. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm cool with that, right? Yeah. I care way more right now about being a good dad to a seven-year-old and five-year-old that live with me, right? And when yeah, they turn cool. like 21 and they're like, you know, partnered with somebody about to get married, they never went to prison, they've got like a good life plan, then I'll pivot back, right? Yeah. Um, but that's how, that's, that's how life works doesn't necessarily mean that you failed. It means you were smart enough to see that you need different things of focus at different points in your life. Right. Right on that. You really could have ended it, uh, ended it much more. David, I, I really do appreciate your time today and I appreciate, um, you know, our viewers appreciate everything that you had, have had to say about writing, you know, the world of podcasting, speaking. I surely have learned a lot. I know everyone uh, that's going to be listening to this episode has learned a lot. So, you know, thank you very much for being on the show. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, that's another episode of The Relentless Life with Mr. David Burkus. You know where to find him. Check out the show notes and uh, and type in David Burkus in, in Google and you, you will be sure to find him. Make sure to live consistently relentless. Thank you, guys. And there you have it. Another episode of The Relentless Life in the Books. Thanks so much for tuning in with us today, team. It really does mean the world to me and to the Relentless Life community. Now, if you enjoyed today's episode and don't want to miss the next, and I'm telling you right now, you definitely do not want to miss these guests and these interviews we have coming up on the show, go ahead and subscribe. Hit that subscribe button, whether it be on Spotify, the Apple Podcast app, wherever it is you may be listening to. Go into the search bar, Type in The Relentless Life with Chance Galloway and hit subscribe. And if you could, leave a five-star rating and review. This really does mean the world to us, and this is what's going to skyrocket us to the top of the podcasting world. With a relentless effort, I know that anything's possible, and I'm telling you guys right now, I truly have the passion to take us to the top. We're trying to positively affect and reach as many people as possible. If you're looking to rep the relentless life, shoot me an email at chance at gallowayfitness.com and we'll get you in some relentless life here. Now let's grow, live consistently relentless, and live the life we always desire to live.